The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. We're going to spend some time in God's Word. So if uh, you have a Bible, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you have our app, you can just click read in there and it'll pull up to 2 Samuel 7 for you. Starting at verse 1. It says this. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. It's God's word for us today. So that was cool. It was the first time I got to uh, place my hand on my own kid for our kid's blessing. Uh, And uh, he just kept moving my hand off. So... (laughs) Really sweet moment. Um, that's my life. So anyways, um, uh, speaking of that, you may have noticed I'm a little bit under the weather this morning, so I, I do apologize. I got, got these up here. Uh, so if the sniffles start coming, uh, sorry, it's just going to be rough for all of us, but we'll hang in there uh, because we are going to continue in our series on David. And uh, we've been looking at David, this Old Testament figure who's this, this ancient poet uh, turned warrior, turned king. And we're looking at his life, and in particular, we're looking at how he lived all of his life before God. We recognize that sometimes we have this temptation to sort of relegate God to sort of this, uh, this spiritual side, just the, the spiritual zone, like he fits this section of my life, but I'm going to do whatever I want over here and not really worry about him. But what we see about David is that all of his life is lived before God, that he lives with clear eyes and a full heart. 
Now, as we dig into our, our text for today, I, I do want to recognize the, uh, the national holiday uh, that, that we have the Super Bowl today. And uh, despite the fact that they mercilessly destroyed my beloved Green Bay Packers two weeks ago, uh, I will be cheering for the Atlanta Falcons today. And yeah, All right. Calm down, Matt. And, uh, and, and, and honestly, just to tell you all, the, the only reason I'm cheering for the Falcons and not the Patriots uh, is because I have a soul. So that's, you know, that, so hopefully that's where we're all at. I don't know. So, no, true story. I don't really have time for this, but true story. I was hanging out with my sister last night, and, and she's deaf, and we were talking about football teams, and she was telling me that the sign for the Patriots is you make a P, and you go like this, like the guy on the helmet, right? But since uh, Deflategate, they've changed it to a C for cheaters. So it's, like, <laughs> it's really awesome. Uh, anyways. So, but uh, the Super Bowl is a really big deal, right? It's a really big deal. Like, the guys that are playing in it, this is what they have worked for their entire lives, right? You add it up. I mean, the miles they've run, the weights they've listed, lifted, the practices they've been to, the films they've watched, the, the sore bodies, the, the injured bones, everything they've been through, all to get to this moment so that for one season, they can be part of the best football team in the world. And so... After a team wins a Super Bowl, inevitably the question comes to the players, what's next? What's next? Right? Like, I don't know if you guys remember these commercials from back in the day. I guess they brought them back in 2006, too. But right after the Super Bowl ends and there's a winner, uh, they've pre-recorded these commercials, and an a, a interviewer runs up to the quarterback of the winning team and says, like, Phil Simms, you just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do next? And he says, I'm going to Disney World, right? I'm going to Disneyland, right? So what's next? That's what gets asked when, when, when people reach this peak. And I suppose that's a question we've all asked ourselves before too, right? That there's maybe something in your life that you've worked really hard for, something that you've strived for, graduating from school or getting that job or getting that promotion or getting married or having kids or whatever it is, and it finally happens, this thing you've been working towards, and then all of a sudden you say, what's next? What do I do now? And see, this is what's going on in David's life in our text right now. That David has gone from a little shepherd boy to a giant slayer, to an outlaw on the run, to a king, to a vanquisher of foes. Then last week we saw that he's now this, this priestly king ruling over a united nation. And so life is really good for him right now. And so he's left asking this question, now what? And he decides in our text, if you caught it, that for him what's next is to build God a temple, is to build God a house. And as he proposes that idea and then listens to God's response, we'll learn three truths today, all right? So these are the three truths we're going to see today. First of all, we're going to see that pride is sneaky. Pride is sneaky. Secondly, that God's king reigns. And finally, that sitting is the best posture, okay? Pride is sneaky. God's king reigns. Sitting is the best posture. So let's, let's get into it. Pride is sneaky. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can look with me at verses 1 to 3. It says this, Now when the king, referring to David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. All right, so we see in this text, David is just sitting in his palace. He's chilling out. All his enemies and foes have quieted down, and he's twiddling his thumbs, and he says, hey, I've got an idea. 
I've got an idea. And so he calls his pastor, which is always a great thing to do whenever you have an idea. And he calls his pastor, the prophet Nathan, and he says, Nathan, I've got this plan. He said, Nathan, I live in this awesome house. I live in this awesome house, but, but God's ark, it's just in a tabernacle. It's just hanging out in a tent. So that's not right, Nathan. I've got I to build something for God. I've got to build him a temple. I've got to build him a house. And now Nathan's a good pastor, right? And so he hears David say this, and he recognizes that David doesn't just have a good idea. He's got a great idea. That's an inside joke for those of you that have suffered through our new member classes. All right, we only do great ideas here. And so Nathan says, hey, that's a great idea. You go and do that, buddy. You go and build that house for God, man. He's, Nathan's so excited. David wants to do something for God. This is amazing. But here's the thing. Pride is sneaky. Pride is sneaky. And we may not see it at first blush. Maybe you didn't recognize it at first blush. But David is at a crossroads in this text. And he's probably not even aware of it. And Nathan doesn't seem to be aware of it, but he's possibly moving from being full of God, as he has been, to being full of himself. Because pride is sneaky. And see, here's the telltale sign. Look at what he says to Nathan. Look how he proposes this idea to Nathan. Verse 2. See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God is in a tent. Like, implicit in that comparison is that David is now housed better than God. That David has somehow achieved a better standard of living than God. And it's from that position of superiority that he's going to help little old God out. Just do him a favor. See, pride's sneaky. Nathan doesn't recognize that first. He's like, oh yeah, go for it. David, I'm not blaming David. He probably doesn't even see it in himself. He's probably blind to what was going on inside of him. And so that night, God speaks to the prophet Nathan and says, you've got to relay this message to David. And look what he says to Nathan, verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I'm going to stop right there because I love what God says here. And then he kind of, as he elaborates, God gets a little bit snarky, uh, which, which I really appreciate, right? Like, like he says, oh, David, would you build me a house? Really? For little old me? That's so nice of you, David. Hey, you live in that nice house, nice house made of cedar. I say, where'd you get that cedar from? A tree? You ever make a tree, David? Who do you think made that cedar tree, buddy? Okay, do you think I need you to make me a house? No, I'm just fine. And see, this is essentially what Nathan says to David. He says, listen, if, if God wanted you to build him a house, he'd have you do it. But he doesn't. So you just do what's in front of you. You just do the work that's in front of you. See, pride can be sneaky. Pride can be sneaky. Uh, so I mentioned in my sermon last week that uh, two weekends ago, I was speaking at a, a youth event in St. Louis. Uh, and I've told you all before that when I do these things, I, I like doing them, but they're weird. Like, they're just weird. Like, they, there's a, a stage, and there's lights, and literally when I walk on the stage, the kids applaud, uh, which, 
when that happens, my first joke is I'm always like, well, this is weird. Normally at my church, when I get up front, they boo. Uh, so at, at any rate, uh, but it's just odd, right? And so I know that that sort of thing can go to a person's head. And so whenever I'm there, I'm like, I'm trying to do this sort of stuff to just keep me humble, keep me grounded. And so I try and I work with the setup crew and, and I help them take down afterwards and I'll straighten up chairs uh, after each of the gatherings and I'll try and connect with the, the kids off the stage, not just on the stage. And I, and I do those sort of things uh, just to, to keep me humble. I thought I did a really good job at that, but pride is sneaky. And so this past week, I, I got an email from uh, the event director at the, the most recent one I was, I was speaking at, and she got a complaint from one of the youth leaders about one of my talks. And the youth leader, who was not even at the event, uh, was concerned because from what she was hearing uh, from the youth that were there, she didn't think that I had enough grace in my talks, that I didn't, didn't have enough gospel in my talks. Now listen, I got this email, and it crushed me, crushed me, just sank low. Why? Not because the complaint was warranted, and I didn't have enough grace. I mean, you guys, hopefully, if you've been here, I'm pretty obsessed with that idea, right? Like, it wasn't, wasn't that. I was crushed because somebody somewhere doesn't think I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, right? And so, so my mind instantly went like, didn't she see how many kids I impacted? Doesn't she know how important my work is? How could she possibly question that? See, pride is sneaky. I mean, like, the, the first thing I ever tell young preachers is this. Take the gospel seriously. Don't take yourself seriously. And yet, here I was up in arms because I wasn't getting the accolade that I felt I deserved. Pride is sneaky. And see, here's how I know it's sneaky. That while I've been up here talking about pride... How many of you in your head have been like, boy, somebody else really needs to hear this? <laughs> Guess what the source of that is? It's pride. Or how about for, for some of you, after we, I, I do the sermon, we have a time of confession, right, where I encourage you to go before God and confess your sins. Have you ever had a time where you've said, I don't really know that I have anything to confess. I've been pretty good this week. I know what you can confess this week. It's pride, right? It's sneaky. It's sneaky. See, pride is sneaky, and there's times when we, like David, need a Nathan to come into our lives and tell us to just slow our roll a little bit, to remind us that we're not God, that we don't know everything, that we're not in control of everything. And so Nathan does that. He tells David, you got to slow your roll. And then he tells David, listen, you're, you're not going to build God a house. God's going to build you a house. God's going to build you a house, David, and he's going to establish a kingdom from your lineage that's going to last forever. Now, this is an amazing text that we're about to read here, so pay close attention to it. This is uh, verses 11b through 16. It says this, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
All right, so God speaks to David. He says, listen, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a kingdom that lasts forever. Now, let's just break down really simply all that God promises David. He says, David, when you die, a new king is going to rise up, and these are going to be the attributes of the new king. He's going to be your son, a son of David, but he's also going to be a son to me, the son of God. He's going to establish a kingdom. He's going to build me a house. He's going to be disciplined by men, but loved by me, and his kingdom is going to last forever. Okay, that's kind of a quick summary of all that God promises David in that, that huge set of verses we just read. Now, who could that be talking about? There's actually a couple options. Option one is, is we do have Solomon, right, who's, who's David's direct descendant, direct heir, the, the king to rise up after David, and he does, he is a son of David. Uh, he certainly seems to relate to God as a son. He sees God as his father. Uh, he establishes the kingdom. He builds God a house, Solomon's temple. It's a big deal. Solomon builds a temple for God. Uh, he's disciplined by men. He messes up a ton and certainly pays for it. But God's love doesn't seem to depart from him. And so is this text talking about Solomon? In a sense, yeah, it is. And I think it's okay to say that. It very well could be. But for those of you paying attention, you're saying, wait a minute, buddy. His kingdom doesn't last forever, right? I mean, I mean God made this prophecy to David 3,000 years ago. Anyone know of a kingdom of Solomon in the world right now? Anyone seeing that? No, right? So who's this about? Well, a thousand years after this prophecy, the gospel writer Matthew uh, opens up the first line of his biography about Jesus with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew 1.1. And so Matthew says, Jesus is the son of David. And then two chapters later, in this same gospel, Jesus is baptized, and God's voice says this, Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus begins his ministry exactly a chapter later, Matthew 4.17, and says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom. And then Jesus builds God a house, Matthew 16, 18. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And in fact, in John 2, we know that Jesus refers to himself as God's temple, that he's going to raise it up from the grave. And so what are we seeing so far? Jesus is son of David, son of God. He establishes a kingdom. He builds God a house. Next, he's disciplined by men, right? That when Jesus is on trial, they ask him, they say, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And he says, yes. And in fact, I sit on the right hand of the Father. I'm equal with the Father. And he gets charged with blasphemy. And then this happens, Matthew 26, 67. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him. And Jesus is then crucified. But God's love doesn't depart from him because he rises from the dead. And he says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We see that his kingdom is forever. So let's just go over our checklist real quick. Son of David, son of God, establishes a kingdom. Builds God a house, 
He's disciplined by men. He's loved by God. His kingdom lasts forever. Do you think the gospel writer Matthew was trying to cue us into something? You think he wanted us to see something? That 1,000 years after God promises this king to David, it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that like absolutely amazing. This is mind-blowing to me. Like, like, maybe if you're not a, a Christian and you're here with us this morning, I, I hope you at least see in that, that that a prophecy that happened a thousand years ago, is written down a thousand years ago, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That means that however much this lines up with Jesus, I mean, this is either the biggest lie in the history of the world or the biggest coincidence in the history of the world. And if you are a Christian, how amazing is this? How amazing is this? Leading Old Testament scholar in the world right now, a guy named Walter Brueggemann, uh, says this about 2 Samuel 7, this prophecy about Jesus. He says, It is the dramatic and theological center of the entire Samuel corpus, one of the most crucial texts in the Old Testament for evangelical faith. See, this text shows us that God's plan of salvation, his plan to redeem and restore all that is broken in this world back to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, that that plan is masterful. That it's been brilliantly thought out. That God's plan to bring you into a right relationship with him, that God's plan to connect you to him, to bring you into his kingdom through his Davidic king, Jesus, that that's been at work from time immemorial. And I say that, and I think all at once, friends, if you really think on that for a second, that should make you so confident and yet so humble. And it should make you confident because what this text, what we're seeing in this text is that 3,000 years ago, in a land that's over 7,000 miles away from here, the king of a small people group asked the God of the universe if he could build him a temple, and God said, no. Instead, I'm going to build a kingdom in which anyone, anywhere can be invited in. In which no matter who they are or what they've done, they're invited into this kingdom that's ruled by my son now and forever. And they're able to come into this kingdom because my son will be struck by sinful men and crucified for him. But my love won't leave him. He'll rise again. And he'll show that my kingdom lasts forever. You know how amazing this is? 3,000 years ago, God made a promise to David about a kingdom that he knew he'd bring you into today in Leander, Texas. That's mind-boggling. Now, that should give you all the confidence in the world that God cares for you so much that he'd work out this incredible plan of salvation that he might bring you into it today. And so there's only one way to properly respond to that incredible plan of salvation. That's with humility. That's with sitting down in front of God. See, after Nathan tells David all that God told him, after Nathan tells David all that God is going to do, God's entire plan of salvation through this king, look at what David does. Verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? 
And I love this part in the text, right? That, that after David thinks, hey, I'm going to help God out. I'm going to build him a nice little house. And God says, no, 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 buddy. I'm going to do something that's going to completely change your world forever. And after David hears all that God is going to do for him, how does he respond? I love this. Top of verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. He went in and sat before the Lord. See, friends, the cure for the sneakiness of pride is to sit before the Lord. The cure for the sneakiness of pride is to see God's incredible plan of salvation worked out in your life, see how it's worked out in your life, and just sit before him. I just want to ask you all if you've ever done that. If you've ever done that, if you've ever done what David does here, have you ever asked the question that David asked, sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me this far? Have you ever done that? Have you ever said to God, Why, why did you save me? God, why, why did you send Jesus for me? God, why, why do you love me so much? What, what do I do to deserve all these blessings that you've given me in my life? Have you ever done that? And this isn't about being self-deprecating and saying, woe is me. It's about us recognizing how gracious the hand of God is in each of our lives. It's about simply sitting before God and receiving His grace in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, what would that look like? What would that look like? Well, let me give you a couple examples. One, uh, last week after, uh, after our service, I was walking to the back and uh, there's a man there who is clearly uh, a little bit emotionally distraught. And, uh, and Sandy introduced me to him. And, and so I started to talk to him. And I said, hey, you know, welcome to Acts. Is this your first time here? And he said, well, sort of. It's like kind of a yes or no question. But uh, uh, what, what, what do you mean by sort of? And he said, well, actually, uh, my, my family, uh, before you guys were in this space, we used to run a little store uh, inside this space. And uh, my wife and I, we prayed uh, before we opened the store that, that God would use this space, that more people would know him, that more people would be brought closer to him. And he said, we, we used to have this little room uh, that had chairs there and a Bible where we encouraged people that came and visited our little shop if they wanted to, to pray or just hang out or study God's word, that they were welcome to do that. And he said that room was, was right about here, where you're sharing God's word with people on Sunday mornings. And he said, I just can't believe how God's answered this prayer. I never would have imagined that he would have done it this way. But it's so amazing to see his grace in action. That's one way. Some of you say, well, that's, that's well and good for that guy, but like, that's just not happening for me. What does it look like for me to sit before God's grace? Example two. Uh, we, how do I put it? I like my job a lot. Uh, and, and, and I like to work a lot, and, and I love it. And, and when I'm not working, I like to be totally shut off, right? And so I like to, you know, just read a book or, or watch Netflix or whatever. And, and so, um, so for me, this idea of sitting and receiving God's grace and just humbly sitting before him, if I'm just honest, it sounds kind of boring. I'm like, I don't think I want to do that. Um, that's, that's my gut. Uh, but I, I felt very convicted that I needed to do this a couple weeks ago. And so on my day off on, on Thursday, uh, my, my wonderful wife, who is, is very gracious and kind, let me just leave the house for the entire day. And so I went and I, and I took my Bible and my journal and I, and I walked around and I hiked around uh, this trail in Georgetown. And I found this bridge and I sat down 
I just prayed, and I read Scripture for like four hours. I sat there. And I, I don't tell you that to like brag about my piety, all right? I need to do that more often, to be honest. But I just want to share with you, like, like that's what it looked like for me to just sit before God and just thank Him for His grace in my life, to humbly receive it. And I'll tell you, man, I was humbled by His Spirit, and I was energized by His presence. I was grateful for His grace. See, so much of our lives and so much of your lives are go, 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 do, 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 do all this stuff. And we see in David that the posture we're meant to have, that the best posture we can have in the world is to simply sit before our King and receive His grace. It's the best thing you could do this week. And so I just want to encourage you, let me get really practical as I close. I don't normally get this practical, but, but would you spend some time this week sitting before God and reflecting on all that He's done for you in Jesus Christ? Would you spend some time just sitting before Him, receiving His grace and humility, and asking the question, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Let's pray. Lord God, our King, we sit before you this morning and just humbly receive your grace. All that Jesus has done for us to go to the cross, to rise again, to call us to be your children, we thank you for that. God, I pray for each of my friends. I pray that they would just be able to receive your grace this week. They'd sit before you and see your hand in everything. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.